Just over a month ago, horse racing became the first major British sport to restart as the lockdown eased. Great moments involving great horses. The racehorse, Golden Horn, triumphing in the 2015 Epsom Derby. The man who, day in, day out, looked after Golden Horn was the groom, Michael Curran. Every time that horse is feeling a bit down, it's the stable lad who'll be whispering in his ear, trying to get him back feeling better about himself. So the relationship is incredibly intense. But in May 2020, the people of Newmarket learned of Michael's sudden death. One of them was Sunday Times journalist David Walsh. What I wanted to do was to say, here is a guy who ended his life by suicide. There were times when his life was incredibly meaningful and rich and happy. It didn't end well. But you know what? He was around and he was loved. He was loved. He was respected. Yet, Michael Curran died. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the death of a stable lad. During 2014 and 2015, Michael Curran was at the very top of his profession. The horses he cared for had triumphed at some of the world's biggest races. What Michael Curran did in those two seasons was the absolute summit for a person involved in caring for horses. David Walsh is the chief sports writer for the Sunday Times. If Michael Curran was a golfer, he would have won the Masters and the Open Championship in the same season. If he was a tennis player, he would have won Wimbledon and Roland Garros, the French Open. If he was a Formula One driver, he would have won six Formula One Grand Prix. Michael's career had really taken off when the up-and-coming trainer, John Gosden, assigned him to one of his prize horses. In 2013, John Gosden had a really good two-year-old. The horse was called Kingman. Kingman, in 2014, has the most extraordinary season where he wins four group ones. He wins a classic in Ireland. He wins the St. James's Palace Stakes, which is, for some people, the single best race at Royal Ascot. makes him the champion three-year-old for that season. Tremendous career. And you get a sense of what Michael Curran is like when you know that he's going down to Royal Ascot. And before he goes there, he calls up his mum. And he says, Mum, I think Kingman's going to win the St. James's Palace at Royal Ascot next week. I'd love you to come down. And she stood beside Michael watching on the big screen as Kingman won the St. James's Palace. Michael was shouting and screaming and when the horse won and I'm saying, Michael, calm down, calm down. She thought he was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> he screamed so passionately. At the end of that season, Michael Curran was given the Pride of Racing award that goes to 
the most successful member of the entire stable staff of the UK. John Gosden, who was the trainer, spoke about Michael. He really cares for his horses with great affection and diligence. He's a fabulous rider, can ride anything, rides work. And he is, without doubt, about the most popular chap in the stables here in the yard. He's always... And because Michael has done so well with Kingman, John Gosden asked Michael to take over Golden Horn. And Golden Horn becomes the great champion of 2015, winning the Epsom Derby. Winning the Prix de l'Arc de Triumph. And going off to a hugely successful career as a stallion. So Michael Curran at this point is probably the single most successful stable lad in the world. Third and fourth tight between New Bay and Trev. She could never quite reel in Golden Horn. If you look back at the video clips of the aftermath of the Prix de l'Arc de Triumph, another member of John Gosden's staff, Tony Proctor, catches Mick Curran by the legs, lifts him up in the air. He's a smallish guy, but now he's about eight or nine feet in the air. And it's a really striking piece of video footage because it shows you a man at the height of his career living and loving every moment of it. If somebody said to you that this isn't going to end well, you would have thought ridiculous. But it wasn't ridiculous. Five years after the Derby triumph, Michael Curran would take his own life. David Walsh wanted, needed almost, to find out why. And just a warning, in this episode there are going to be some detailed references to Michael's death. I live in Newmarket. Newmarket is a town in Suffolk, about 15 miles east of Cambridge. And it's a town that's dominated by the horse. I heard people talking about the death of Michael Curran, who had died by suicide. And the people who spoke about him said things like, you know, he was incredibly popular. He was a really nice, kind-hearted guy. I worked with yeah. him. He was very, very good at his job. He was a very good rider, very right. conscientious, genuinely loved horses. That's Susie Backham, a colleague of Michael Curran's. You'll be hearing more from her and from others who knew Michael throughout this episode. He'd been very, very good at his job, right at the top. I knew that he'd had this terrific success as a stable lad five years ago. And my thinking was, how could a guy go from great success to the anguish that caused him to end his own life in the space of five years? What had happened? One of the first things you would have done was found out about his background, where he was born, what kind of boy he was. I spoke to his mum, Lily. Is that Lily? Yes, it is, yes. Uh-huh. Lily David Welch is my name. I spoke to Welch. Because I felt if I'm going to write a story about a 54-year-old man whose life ended so tragically, I wasn't going to write it in any way that would be upsetting or make the lives of his immediate family more difficult. He's from Gala Shields in the Scottish borders. He grew up in that town. His dad was called Welch. His mum was Lily. His younger brother was called Walsh, like his dad. And I think boyhood was quite difficult for Michael because, as his mum says, he was the loveliest boy you ever had. He was a very loving, good boy when he was younger. 
But he was quite timid, and when he went to school, he was bullied. If somebody hit him, he would never hit back, and it used to frustrate And she said it frustrated me because I wanted him to fight back, to stand up for himself. He never fought back, and he was bullied. And horses became his refuge, the place where he felt most comfortable. When we were still at school, we used to have to pee to hire a horse. There's a tradition in the Scottish borders of horses being ridden on common land. And if you own a horse or rent a horse, you can partake in lots of horse riding. That's the place that Michael gravitated to. So he used to rent horses even as a young boy? Even as a young boy. Well, his parents rented him on his behalf. And you looked after the horse and it became yours for maybe the summer months when you were off school. And then you could join in this common riding where groups of people would meet and do long rides. And that's where Michael cut his teeth as a young rider. Was he more in tune with the horses and the riding than, say, with his peers? I would say definitely. Because his mum told me that when school was over mid-afternoon, he would head straight off to see the horse he was looking after and would spend time with the horse, and, and he wanted to be with the horse all the time. And he'd prefer to do that than, say, play football with the other kids. Yes, absolutely. Horses were central to his young life. And then when the chance came, he left home to go to a racing stable. That was at the age of 16. He moved from Gala Shields to the, another border town called Hike home to Harry Bell, who was a very successful national hunt or jump racing trainer. And from there, he would move to Lamborn in Wilshire and started to work for Barry Hills, who was a successful flat race trainer. And that began a long train of stable lad going from trainer to trainer, which is quite common. It's a very fluid profession where people move in and out of stable yards. As they get tired of one, they move on to another now, what kind of talents would you have to show in order to be able to be taken on at 16 as a stable lad? The biggest thing is you, you need to be comfortable around horses. You need not to be scared. And I know that sounds a pretty basic requirement, but it's easy to talk about and not so easy to have. I mean, these are very powerful animals. Not all horses are kind-hearted. Some of them are difficult in a playful way. Some of them are difficult in a mean-spirited way. They will kick and bite. So you need to be strong, fearless, empathetic, and you need to have a way of getting the horse round to your way of thinking. And if you're a rider, as Michael Curran was, you need to be a very skillful rider because these are very valuable horses that you're going to be working with and you really need to know what you're doing. So although the stable lad's life has some very menial elements to it, he needs to be very talented because as a rider, he's being asked to school that young horse in a way that is going to allow that young horse to develop into a proper racehorse. So a good stable lad has really significant riding talents. And do they also come to like their horses? No question about that. Because the horse, I think, unique amongst the animal kingdom. They thrive on a one-on-one -on -one relationship. You will have trainers who know that some horses get upset when they don't see their stable lad. Really? Yes, and it is quite a difficulty for especially the most successful trainers who are looking at the finest of margins that make a difference. 
So there's actually an emotional relationship that cuts both ways. Yes, it is. I think there's a dependence, certainly on the horse's part, whether it's a colt or a filly, they need their stable lad. And what do we know about Michael Curran's relationship with horses, his attitude towards them in that sense? Well, I spoke to one of Michael's close friends, Helen Crystal, and Helen said, Michael and I were the same. Because when you're in racing, you get it drilled into you that they're not pets, that they're there yes. to do a job. And this. But I'm very much like Mick was, you know, you do fall in love with them. You can't help it. To him, they weren't just race horses, they were his babies. And everything that I've heard about him endorses that. He absolutely loved his horses and he treated them with great kindness. Being a horse groom isn't an especially lucrative profession. The average salary is in the region of £25,000 a year, although more experienced grooms can earn more. And yet a stable can't succeed without really good stable lads. Totally. I mean, if you think that you've got a stable lad looking after a horse who very soon is going to be going out there winning the Epsom Derby. And if that horse turns out to be a very good three-year-old colt, he may go on to the Pre-Directe de Triumph at Longchamp in Paris later this year. And if that horse were to win both the Derby and the Pre-Directe de Triumph, that horse could suddenly be worth 20 million, 30 million. And he could go on to make a multiple of that amount if he has a successful career as a stallion. You could say, well, the trainer is the one who matters. But actually, the stable lad is the one who spends the most time with the horse. So, Michael Curran became a stable lad, which was something he'd wanted to be. Tell me a bit about what we now know about his personal life. If you'd said to his mum and dad and his brother, Welch, what was Michael like? I think they would have said maybe a a little bit timid, in love with horses. So if he's going off to work in horses, he's going in the right place. They didn't know anything about Michael's sexuality at that time. But over the following 10 years, he definitely came to an understanding that he was gay. And at that time, he didn't feel ready to share that with his parents or with his brother. I mean, I think he was soon comfortable with being gay, but he wasn't comfortable about telling his family he was gay. And what did his co-workers know about his personal life? By the time Michael came to Newmarket, he was in his, I think, mid-twenties. And they knew pretty much immediately that he was gay. And I spoke to a woman called Elizabeth Clayton. And Liz Clayton worked with Michael. And she's thinking, this is a really nice guy. He's good looking. He's polite. He treats people well. He makes me laugh. And he's outstanding with horses. And she thought, this is the guy for me. She really fancied him. And another stable lad was watching and he noticed how Liz was feeling. And he pulled her to one side and said, you do know Michael is gay. And she said to me, I looked at the guy and I said, that's always the effing way. The nicest ones are always gay. (laughs) And she was devastated. But she said, I lost a potential boyfriend. But I found a guy who's been like a brother to me all these years. But it does seem that, at work at least, he was happy for people to know that he was gay and they were perfectly happy with him being gay. In a general sense, yes. And I say that in a slightly qualified way, David, because 
You know, you go out into a pub on a Saturday night in Newmarket or any other town in England. And is it possible that somebody is going to say something homophobic? Definitely. Would Michael Curran have experienced that from time to time? Definitely. His brother Welch told me Michael never dealt with that stuff well. It really upset him. He couldn't just brush it off and put it down to ignorance. It got him down. It wasn't a racing thing. It wasn't a new market thing. It was far more a societal thing. And as time went on, what people around Michael began to understand was that he had a longing for a stable relationship. All Michael wanted, basically, was someone to love him as much as he loved them. And that became a quest, I think, that consumed him. And when the dark moments came, they were fueled by the thought that he was never going to find this person. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier, we heard about the successes of Kingman and Golden Horn, two champion horses that Michael looked after. But what happened to him in the years that followed these victories? Financially, Michael would have done really well from Golden Horn and from Kingman because when you're a stable lad and your horse wins big, you win big financially. You can earn multiple amounts of money relative to your salary. So he would have had good times. He definitely drank a little bit too much. Multiple people said to me that when you were out with Michael, he would be the life and soul of the party. And it was so nice to see him having fun, but you always yeah. had one eye open because you knew that in a minute he'd fall asleep and you'd have to take in and rescue him from somewhere. You just had a way of making you smile. You were either laughing with him or at him, especially when he was dancing on the tables or falling asleep in the most random places possible. And he would have a few drinks. I mean, he was never loud or never aggressive or anything like that, but he would just fall asleep. (laughs) And you would end up either bringing him back to your place or back to his place. But what happened then was that he started to show up late for work occasionally at John Gosden's, started to miss days. Because he was a valued member of staff, they spoke to him. They said, look, Mick, we can't go on if you're not going to show up. And he lost his job. Now, there were reasons why this happened. And one of them that everybody says was quite significant was that Michael found a man 
that he got on really well with, Mark, who was a school teacher. And Michael used to tell his friends that he thought this was the guy that he really wanted to spend a lot of time with. And then Mark was killed in a car crash. And that really upset Michael and broke his heart. Mick was devastated because they were getting on really well. It's a catastrophic thing to happen. You describe how he was looking for somebody and he'd always wanted maybe, if to use the phrase, settle down with somebody. And he finds somebody after all this time because by now he's in his late 40s, early 50s, isn't he? And then the man dies. Yes. And he really was affected by it. One of his friends, I think it was um, Liz Clayton, said to me that for two or three years afterwards, since Mark died in that car crash, Michael would text her on his anniversary and say how bereft he was. And people close to Michael knew that the times when he felt down were becoming more frequent. He was drinking more than he should have been, and that exacerbated the feelings of being down. His mum told me an extraordinary story. 2018, two years ago, Michael lived at that time in Newmarket in a flat over a laundrette. And the woman who did the ironing in the laundrette, Sue, she was incredibly fond of Michael. And she noticed that she wasn't seeing him as much as she normally would coming in and out of the flat. And when she did see him, she thought he was thin and he didn't want to engage with her. So she got in touch with Michael's mum. Lily and said, look, I'm a bit worried about Michael. We think he's had a nervous breakdown because we haven't seen him. I've spoke to him for six weeks. She says, you need to come down. And Lily came down from Scotland and she basically contacted the police and said, you know, I haven't been in touch with my son. I haven't been able to get in touch with him for a number of weeks and I'm really worried. And the police went into the flat and they found Michael there. He was alive, but he had written six letters to his friends and his family, which were meant to be suicide notes to all of them. And they basically talked him out of it at that time, told him that it wouldn't be the right thing to do, that they all loved him, and they made him promise that he would never do anything like this again. And his life did get back onto a a slightly more even keel. In late May, Michael Curran killed himself. As is so often the case, his suicide came as a terrible shock to those who knew him. His friend Susie had gone for a coffee with him just a few days before his death, and they'd planned to see each other the following week. And how did the family find out that he had died? They were basically contacted by the police, I think, and they were told that he had ended his life in the flat in Exning, where he now lived, and they were obviously devastated. Uh, usually when my brother was feeling like low, but he, he'd messaged me. That's Michael's brother, Welsh Curran. And then he'd say it straight away what was wrong and that, but not recently, yeah. you think, well, not even give one little clue. I just That's one thing I find it hard. And I know people say that, but that's what people do. I was like, well, maybe that's what people do, but I just thought it'd be something that, that might have been bothering them, or what, what could it have been? And I know Welsh, for one, and others wonder whether Michael had taught all of this through and knew exactly what he was going to do. David, what then happened when the family went to pick up his things? This was 
a dreadful end to a really sad and tragic story. Welsh and Lily Curran decided they would come down to Newmarket as soon as they could. Michael had stayed in a flat owned by his friend Daryl Holland, which Michael you know, was paying rent for at Stables in Exning that Daryl Holland owned. And they left Gala Shields early on the Monday morning and they wondered about, you know, needing boxes and bags to put Michael's stuff in. And they contacted Daryl Holland, who's now riding in Canada. And Daryl Holland gets back to them by text and says, that's all okay. I have had a cleaner in and all the stuff is already in boxes and bags. And Mick Curran's mum and brother were horrified, especially Lily Curran, because she really desperately wanted to see how Michael had lived the last days of his life. I don't know why they did it, but they got cleaners in to clean up the flat and bag everything and put it in a cupboard. It was just devastating. The whole place looked as if nobody had ever stayed there in their whole life. We were heartbroken. Um, two of Michael's best friends, Susie Backham and Helen Crystal, go to the stables to meet the mum and Michael's brother. And they get a key to the flat. They walk inside and Michael's brother said, it was like walking into a holiday villa that you've hired where the previous tenants have moved out and the cleaners have come in. At the end of the day, it's respect. And other people shouldn't be going about a deceased person's belongings and that until the actual family's had a bit closure. Nobody thought maybe Michael's mother and brother would like to see how Michael's flat was during his last days. When Welsh Curran, Michael's younger brother, who loved him dearly, was going through Michael's stuff, he came across an album, a photo album. And towards the end, there's a photograph of Michael and Curran outside Buckingham Palace. And written alongside of it was, Welsh, don't be sad. And Welsh has no idea when Michael wrote that in, although he imagines that it was close to him ending his life. But he would love to know for sure, and maybe if things hadn't been packed away, there would have been a clue as to where the album was and what page it was open on. When Michael's friends and family entered his flat, they were looking for one particular object. When Golden Horn won the pre de Triumph with Michael leading him in to the winner's enclosure, the Longshaw track put a lovely silk kind of saddle cloth over the horse to say, pre de Triumph winner 2015. And that's given to the stable lad. And if you looked at Mick Curran's Facebook profile photograph, He's wrapped like a king in that saddle cloth. And they were looking for that. And one of the ladies, I think it was Susie Backham, said, look, there's a fire escape room here. Something could be left through this door. They opened the door and they see the ladder in place as it was when Michael Curran ended his life. It should never, ever have happened like that. The silk something that they would have loved to have had, memory of Michael on his greatest day. But they have no idea where that silk cloth is. And if there's anybody out there who knows or could get it to the family, they'd be doing the right thing. David, this is a story 
of a suicide and the man whose death was involved. There are many such stories in any given year. Why did you feel the need to try and tell this one? You're absolutely right about there are many stories of suicide. Every time I've read a story about suicide and I read a story about stable lads in the past dying by suicide in Newmarket, but I I never felt that I engaged properly with the stories because the people didn't feel real to me. It was like it was a piece about suicide, not a piece about a person who ended his life by suicide. And what I wanted to do was to say, here is a guy who ended his life by suicide. He was incredibly loved. There were times when his life was incredibly meaningful and rich and happy, but it didn't end well. But you know what? He was around and he was loved and he's as deserving of our respect as anybody. And that to me is the justification for doing the piece. To say, you know what? Michael Curran isn't just another suicide statistic. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Chief Sports Writer, David Walsh. You can read more of David's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Edward Drummond and Dan Hardoon. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Also, in these uncertain times, you can access analysis, opinion and advice from the experts every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe today to find out more.